Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So, Susan, as we learned this week, I want to know if this is really true. Did you really not know there are nine innings in a baseball game? So the people of Twitter are, like, shocked at this. It's not that I didn't know. It was I wasn't positive there were nine innings in a baseball game. <laughs> there things, you were sort of sure? <laughs> there's knowledge that you really need to acquire, and then there's knowledge that you just don't need. So you, you don't all acquire. this time not knowing... That like they're nine, a, sort of a basic seven. I feel like seven was a thing. Fact that most Americans take for granted. You've you heard know, of seventh inning stretch. You haven't heard of exactly. ninth inning stretch. But, but in terms but, of but colloquially, hadn't you run into the phrase "the bottom of the ninth? Yeah, but how does does that mean the end? Mm. <laughs> I, I guess <laughs> now we know your the answer. Skepticism is, is yes. beginning to make more sense. Is there, Look, are there other as things? far as knowledge gap goes? I've managed to uh, live a full and productive life without knowing this about baseball. Are there things that other people have not known their whole life? Well, I, I will admit to being 17 and going for the first time with a friend to visit the Church of the Holy Sepulchre and being really impressed by how many people were there and going back home and asking, so who's buried in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre? <laughs> In your defense, he's not really buried there. <laughs> How about you, Shane? Oh, I was born with perfect knowledge. Ah, okay. Uh, a of, walking of, Wikipedia. Of a very limited number of things. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Ben? Uh, so for me, it's whole categories of things that everybody else takes for granted, like things involving pop culture, Anything in the style sh- section, basically. Yeah, I mean, things, you know, that everybody else just knows as a result of being a teenager or ever having thought about being a teenager. Uh, I learned only relatively recently when my kids started uh, saying the name uh, that uh, the the person uh, whose name is spelled B E Y O N C E that that name is is was not pronounced Bay once. <laughs> she is Who Queen Bay, so it's not entirely <laughs> ridiculous. But most... I'm sorry, it is more ridiculous to not know how to pronounce Beyonce <laughs> than to not know how many innings are in a baseball game. Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the I Thought You Said Renuclearization Edition. I'm Shane Harris, fully informed pop culture reporter. Honest. I don't report on pop culture, but I'm fully informed on pop culture. Well, for the most part. Can I just say that that Donald Trump seems just like Susan is the only person who doesn't know that there are nine innings in a baseball game, and I am the only person who doesn't know how to pronounce Beyonce. Um, Donald Trump seems to be the only person who's surprised that North Korea isn't, you know, racing to denuclearize. (laughs) Here's the difference. Susan now knows there are nine (laughs) innings in a baseball game. Yeah, whereas Trump is still having trouble with the idea that that Russia may have been somehow involved in our election. 
that's fake news. Yeah, you would have thought that he would have, like, using the baseball metaphor after Singapore, would have said, you know, we're in the beginning of the first inning here. Like, we've just thrown out the first pitch. And it was, no, it was the series is over and we can go home. But, yeah, not working out that way so much as we're going to discuss. I'm here in the Jungle Studio with my friend Susan Hennessy, Benjamin Wittes, and Tamara Kaufman Wittes. Hi, everybody. Hi. Happy 5th of July. I hope everyone had a good holiday. Um, a sultry holiday. It's, it was, it's miserable in the nation's capital, weather-wise. Uh, this week on the podcast, U.S. intelligence says North Korea is not giving up its nukes, at least not so quickly. Should the next Supreme Court justice recuse on matters involving Trump and the Russia probe and the war in Afghanistan grinds on with little notice as Trump heads off to a tense meeting with NATO allies um so let's start with i guess i don't know if this is too flip of me to say surprise surprise about uh u.s intelligence reports on north korea but we report so reports this week in the past few days too really that uh the defense intelligence agency has concluded that north korea is not at least not moving right now to give up its nuclear weapons satellite imagery shows construction going on at key facilities as part of the of the nuclear program um so let me ask you i mean is this is this process coming off the rails even before it's begun, or is it not terribly surprising that you know these pieces of the program would still be humming along since we don't actually even have a deal per se? Yeah, so I think as a threshold matter, that's sort of the core point, right? We we never understood what the deal was in the first place, right? They they never actually bothered to to write it down, and it wasn't clear whether there was even a common definition of what denuclearization meant. I think sort of the most interesting thing to, from my perspective right now is the intelligence community has now made public uh, a finding that conflicts with the president's narrative, right? That he went uh, he went and he had this summit. It was a win. He was successful. He accomplished something that no other presidents were able to accomplish. And now this is this is sort of the the evidentiary basis to say, no, that's not actually uh, uh, what happened. And so we still haven't heard Trump weigh in on this and explain whether or not he accepts this finding uh, or as he's done with the Russian interf- uh, election interference, if he's just going to dismiss it altogether. I worry that that something even more profound might be occurring, which is not that he's going to concern himself with whether or not the, the, um, the what the North Koreans are actually doing, but he's now convinced himself that the North Koreans are not a threat at all, that he went and he developed this rapport and had this relationship, and therefore we're good, and there's nothing else to worry about here. And so, you know, whether or not they continue to, to, to build nuclear weapons, you know, whatever they're doing, it sort of, it, it doesn't concern us because, you know, he walked us back from the precipice of war. And I, I think that's sort of the more the, the, I, the, the more profound concern, at least in terms of how Trump's brain kind of works about these issues. Yeah. So I think there are two ways to interpret what we've seen so far. One is thinking about it through the, through the lens of Trump always trying to drive the public narrative. And he had his photo op with Kim Jong-un. He created a narrative that he had solved this problem. He kicked it off to Mike Pompeo and uh, U.S. diplomats to to figure out all the details. And so it's off his plate, out of his mind. He got the headlines he wanted. If that's the case, then, you know, Pompeo, who's heading off to to uh, the Korean Peninsula today to keep working on this um, and to meet with the North Koreans, will eventually come back to the president and say, hey, in order to really get this done, I need your backup on X, Y, and Z. 
and he might get it. But if you're right, Susan, if there's a psychological component to this, which is that Trump truly believes that he has solved this problem, then when Pompeo comes back to him, as any senior diplomat would eventually have to do in a high stakes negotiation, comes back to his president and says, I need you to back me up on X, Y and Z. Trump will say, what the hell are you talking about? I can't you know, this is completely irrelevant. Why are you bringing me this? Go away. And the negotiation will collapse. So I agree with you that that is the scarier scenario. But it's, you know, I, I guess the one thing we can say about this is that there is a process underway of U.S. North Korean negotiations that was started by the summit. It's kicked off without clear definitions of terms, without an agreed upon objective. All of that is clearly revealed. The intelligence demonstrates that the North Koreans were expanding their um nuclear weapons program at the very moment that Kim Jong-un was meeting with President Trump. So there's a question about whether they're even acting in good faith on all of this. But at least there's a process that one way or another will generate a conclusion, you know, either success or failure. I mean, one question I do have sort of to everybody is why do we think this leaked, right? This is actually quite a detailed bit of information to come out about. You know, North Korea is a very hard target. This is an area in which the intelligence community tends to be pretty skittish about revealing information at the risk of compromising sources and methods. I I do think there's something interesting to uh, to be said. I'm not quite sure what about the fact that uh, somebody in the intelligence community or, or in the diplomatic corps is concerned enough that they felt like they needed to make this public. Uh, I think it could also have been somebody in the White House. Um, remember that the president is surrounded by uh, people who are actually hardliners on this subject, including uh, John Bolton, uh, who is in no sense somebody who is spoiling for a conciliatory relationship with, uh, you know, with Kim Jong-un. And so my assumption is that that to the extent that there are disclosures here, they would be likely coming out of factions of the White House crew that are maybe not that interested in uh, in in facilitating the president's policy. Yeah, look, I I think the leak is that U.S. intelligence officials had drawn some conclusions about the North Koreans' intentions based on what they've seen, but there, but the initial. Um, revelation that satellite imagery showed the North Koreans expanding their facilities, that actually came out of a think tank, the Stimson Center, which has a project, a longtime project on nuclear nonproliferation. And that's actually more common than not in proliferation issues these days because satellite imagery is so widely available, even of hard targets like North Korea. So um, I there's definitely some leaking going on here, and we can speculate about the motives. But the driver of the news coverage that created, you know, that demonstrated that what the North Koreans are doing counters President Trump's narrative, that driver came from open sources, not from classified ones. And I think to, to Ben's point, I mean, there there are clearly people, John Bolton is one of them, who are interested in the public narrative being that this is going to be a lot harder than just saying, hey, we have peace with North Korea and we're all said and done, and who don't believe for one second, I think that North Korea can be a reliable partner in this until we've seen demonstrable evidence that they want to move forward 
on a negotiation. It seems to me what this is also showing, pointing up is that, and I think to the point of the leaking, there are a lot of people in the intelligence community, I think, who want these things coming out because part of this process is not just striking a deal with North Korea. It is managing the president or to some degree trying to downplay or deflect away from his hyperbolic triumphalist statements on Twitter, which are just simply not grounded in reality and intelligence officials know that. Members of Congress know that. I think on some level, even the president knows that. I mean, he understands that there is, to your point, Tammy, I think there is the kind of the 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 marketing side of this, right? The the sort of the narrative that he wants to build. It wouldn't surprise me at all to find out, though, that the president is, you know, constantly wanting updates and is aware of the fact that these, you know, satellite imagery show construction. I mean, he's not completely detached. Um, but the leaking out of this information, I think, really helps maintain to some degree the credibility of the intelligence agencies as well. They don't want people, I think, believing that they are, you know, buying into some, you know, fanciful idea that suddenly, you know, we have peace with North Korea. I, I agree with that. I just don't think we should assume that there is something adversarial going on here with respect to the president or the yeah. White House. I mean, in, to a certain extent, having it out there publicly that the intelligence analysis has come to these conclusions strengthens Mike Pompeo's hand when he gets to North Korea tonight or tomorrow for these conversations. Totally. And he and Pompeo also to that point was the first person to come out from the administration, I think within a day or two of the Singapore summit and say, well, we're looking forward to the North Koreans being on their way to making progress by the end of the first term. I mean, immediately starts pulling back because mm -hmm. he knows damn well, he's he knows better than anyone, he has been the lead on all these negotiations, that this is a process that's going to be measured in months and years, not in weeks. So I want to say a, a tentative word in defense of the Trump administration on, on North Korea. Uh, so... Let's control for the crazy rhetoric and leave aside whether any of that has been helpful or hurtful or something else in getting us to this place. But 18 months ago, Barack Obama meets with Donald Trump and says to him, this is the hardest problem on our plate. This is the most serious national security issue. This is the real where the real action is, is North Korean uh, missile development and and uh, and uh, nuclear weapons development. And uh, at the time, the new North Koreans were testing missiles on a very regular basis. And today they are not testing nuclear, uh, they are not testing ballistic missiles. They are not, uh, doing tests of, of, uh, uh, nuclear weapons either. And if the scope of North Korea, current North Korean activity is that they are expanding some construction at a particular facility, uh, that is actually a substantial improvement over where we were 18 months ago. And I am willing to entertain all kinds of explanations for this, like that they reached the point that they needed to be at. And so they then decided to engage in a political process. It could be that maybe they actually got scared by some of Trump's belligerent rhetoric. I, I, I'm agnostic as to what the explanation is. Yet I think if you could have said 18 months ago... Uh, to Barack Obama, 18 months from now, take it or leave it. We have essentially a freeze in place. You haven't removed sanctions and they've suspended 
testing both of the weapons and of the missiles, take it or leave it. Barack Obama takes that in a heartbeat. Yeah. And so I actually think the Trump administration in its own crazy way has a not terrible story to tell on North Korea. The problem is it's not the story they're telling. The story they're telling is we've solved the North Korean problem. They're, they're not a nuclear threat anymore. Well, that's the story the president's telling, but privately people in his own administration are not telling that story. Uh, on the other hand, the you know, the, the president's, you know, the president is the administration. Sure. And when he chooses not to tell that story, but to tell a different story that's fantastical instead, you know, the administration has to live with that. I actually think in contrast to a lot of other areas, this is one where the, where the, the truth is at least complicatedly, uh, attractive from their point of view. But what you're saying is also, I mean, that's the entire administration writ large, right? The president tweets one sets of set of things, and then there's the other plane of reality on which, you know, we're all living. Yeah, I, I think the other real issue, Ben, is whether the naivete, the ignorance, the lack of preparation, whatever, with which Trump himself and his administration approached the diplomacy with the North Koreans, whether it gave away leverage that the United States had available to it and therefore got less. In fact, so far has essentially gotten nothing except a halt in tests because the North Koreans escalated tests in order to get the attention of the United States government. And lo, they got the attention of the United States government. So they halted tests, but they could start them again in a heartbeat. They have not agreed to halt tests. They haven't agreed to anything. I agree. We are not at an end state. I do think if you'd said 18 months ago to Barack Obama, hey, take this reality or leave it, he would have taken it. And I think at every stage between then and now, if you'd said we could be at this place now, people would have said, great, how do you know how to sign me up? And I, and I, I don't, you know, I don't think that's anything to sneeze at. Yeah, I, I mean, just a final word. I feel like that's forgetting a part of the narrative, which is that the North Koreans provoked, yes, but it's inevitable that they were going to provoke. They provoke every new president. The difference here is how President Trump responded. He escalated. He created a crisis, and then he used a summit to de-escalate a crisis. So you're congratulating him for de-escalating a crisis that never had to be. Previous presidents have not ended up in a major escalation of tensions with the North Koreans at the beginning of their presidency. They've responded to those same provocations differently. They've worked multilaterally. They've, yes, started diplomatic processes. But so now we have a diplomatic process. It hasn't achieved anything yet. And if you're saying it de-escalated, well, it de-escalated something he escalated. I just one final thought on that. I don't think that's accurate. The the escalation we are at a lower state of escalation than we were before Trump took office. There, the, the missile testing that was taking place for months and months and months before Trump took office is not, you know, that is suspended as well. You know, I don't think he has simply escalated tensions and then de-escalated what he escalated. Where are, where are we on the escalator? 
I, I don't know, but I know that... We're riding the banister. Yeah. We're, <laughs> <laughs> folks love it when Ben and I disagree on the show, so... Well, if you thought North Korea was tough... <laughs> wait I don't know. That was kind of a stretch. <laughs> I don't know. I was going to use something that was said like a minute ago in a transition, but it was that we've, we've lost the thread. Uh, President Trump on Monday is expected <laughs> to announce his nominee uh, for the vacancy on the Supreme Court. Um this interesting debate. I don't even know if I want to call it a debate. We'll decide what we, we, we think it actually is. But the idea has, has arisen, shall we say, uh, that... Some people say. <clears throat> people Many are people saying. are saying. People are saying. Everyone is saying. <laughs> Not quite. Some people are saying. Uh, and we'll talk about who. That the uh, president's nominee for the court should agree to recuse himself or herself from any matters that might come before the court involving the president and the Russia investigation. So, for instance, if Bob Mueller were to subpoena Trump to demand an interview in the Russia probe and the president said no and this issue gets adjudicated and goes to the Supreme Court, should Trump's nominee say, I will recuse myself from this matter because I was the president's uh, nominee. It's not clear to me why Neil Gorsuch wouldn't also need to recuse from that too. But um, Ben, is this a good idea? I mean, is this a, it's a credible thing that we should be uh, <laughs> holding the justice nominee to this standard, or is this just a, a silly proposition? Well, I, I wouldn't don't know whether to attach the word silly to it. It's not the way the judiciary works, and you know we don't say to nominees, because you were nominated by President X, you don't get to rule on matters that President X has an interest in. And, you know, the Nixon tapes case, uh, to cite one example, uh, the uh, opinion was written by Chief Justice Warren Burger, who was appointed to the Supreme Court by Richard Nixon. And uh, the other two Nixon nominees to the Supreme Court were also members of the court at the time. Um, and so the, the rule of recusal is that you recuse when you have a conflict demanding recusal in the case. And that is not a kind of general optical thing that hey, you're politically aligned with so-and-so or you were appointed by so-and-so and I really don't – like so-and-so is involved in this case and therefore you don't uh, sit on it. it. It generally requires a more uh, specific uh, conflict with respect to the specific case. So like he nominates Mike Flynn for the Supreme Court. That's – Well, so I, I – or, or what if – Rather than the individual nominated, what if the president, having learned from his experience with Jeff Sessions, explicitly asks potential nominees, if a case came before you involving, you know, my right to refuse to testify to, to the special counsel, would you help me out? Well, so anybody <laughs> who would answer would that question by virtue of answering that question should certainly not be confirmed because they are ethically unfit to be on the Supreme Court. So I largely agree with Ben, but I do – I think it's less sort of an absurd proposition than than I think you might, Ben. So I think the first thing to understand is – so the, the code of conduct, the judicial code of conduct is binding on all lower courts, but it's not binding on the Supreme Court. So the ordinary recusal rules, which are about whether or not there's even the appearance of impartiality, 
impartiality uh, or whether or not you have sort of personal bias or prejudice, right? So you're related to somebody in a case, something like that. Elena Kagan uh, recused herself from any cases in which she uh, worked on while in the Solicitor General's office, right? So really um, sort of close contacts. Um, for Supreme Court justices, the, the judicial code is not binding on them um, because there's no other judge to replace them. So ordinarily, whenever we're thinking about recusal in the lower courts, we're talking about which judge hears the case. But recusal of the Supreme Court is a different thing. And so we shouldn't be thinking about it with the same standard that we do ordinary judges. That said, uh, I think that the world we're in is that there aren't rules. It certainly would be absurd for a Supreme Court justice to recuse themselves from any matter involving the administration to which they've been appointed. I mean, that that just wouldn't be feasible. But in this case, I, I do think the question is, if there's any belief that the president has selected a justice because he believes that person will be favorable to him on an issue involving his personal or his family member's criminal liability, potentially, or something like whether or not he can pardon himself, you know, questions that he has put on the table by raising himself. If there's any sort of belief that that he's whenever he's looking at these people, he's picking one of them because of that, then I do think you have a question about whether or not recusal is appropriate. And I think that it's not one where you say that person is bound to recuse. They're, they're never bound to recuse. But it is a reasonable thing to put on the table in the confirmation process that if you have a candidate who is otherwise acceptable, but there's there's this lingering doubt, this little thing of, well, are you being picked because you're going to you're going to do the president, not 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 even because you're going to do the president a favor, but because he believes your judicial interpretation sort of renounced his benefit, you know, removing that question uh, from the nomination process by saying, look, I understand this is this perception and, and I'm going to um, I'm going to voluntarily in advance say that I wouldn't work on that case because, you know, of course, I would never want to damage the, the reputation of the court. I, I don't. I don't think it's um, I don't think it's going to happen. I don't think anyone on that list is going to do it. But I don't think it's it's an insane suggestion. A couple thoughts. First of all, I think there's an antecedent question that probably resolves the issue better, which is let's let's imagine for a minute that the nominee is Amy Coney Barrett, uh, just that we have a name to attach to it. So presumably she gets asked in the hearing in your interviews with the president and the White House, did anybody ask you about the Russia investigation, right? Did anybody ask you uh, how you feel about the Bob Mueller investigation? Did anybody, ask, did anybody suggest to you that you should, you know, show loyalty to the president in the context? Presumably, these questions are going to come up. Presumably, everybody in the White House was smart enough not to say something to her that she will have to say, why, yes, the president said, you know, I need loyalty or, you know, something like that. If she were to say that, that would, of course, be grounds for recusal uh, and maybe grounds for, you know, not confirming her. But uh, assuming she then says under oath in front of the Senate, there were no such conversations, then I look at her and say, well, then she's just a, an appellate court nominee who uh, the president may have hopes as to how she would rule in the thing. But there's no there's no evidence of anything untoward. And then you're just saying, well, she's a conservative who was appointed by him. But what if the name is not Amy Cohen, Coney Barrett, but instead Brett Kavanaugh? 
somebody who, within the past decade, wrote a very detailed law review article in which he took positions on the independent counsel statutes and and took positions that a, a reasonable observer and, and even the president himself would likely reach the conclusion that uh, that he does not believe the president should be distracted by these forms of investigations and he has put uh, he has put his his uh, his his legal conclusions and legal conclusions that renown to the president's benefit out there if Trump looks at that law review article and says, oh, look, you don't think that Mueller can subpoena me, and so therefore I'm going to appoint you, even if nobody verbalizes that, even if there isn't a direct question, if there is a sufficient appearance that that's what's animating Trump's choice, and, and look, don't sell the president short, he might just say it outright because, you know, you never know. You don't think that that's any different? Um, so – it's an interesting example. I, I am aware of one law review article that Kavanaugh wrote uh, that actually cuts the other direction. And I'm not aware of an of, of a article that he wrote that... Well, but take the hypothetical, because I think the hypothetical is good, whether or not it's accurate with respect to Brett Kavanaugh in particular. So, so it may well be. I mean, the guy's prolific, and he certainly has executive power beliefs. Um, so uh, look, what I would say is judges come forward with their academic prior academic writings all the time. And the president uh, appoints people all the time. And the Senate goes through this dance of saying, yeah, but how does this interact with what you would do as a judge? And the nominees say, I would, you know, follow the the, the facts, facts and, and the, the law, law right. in the case before <laughs> me. And my, you know, I have other things I would be faithful to other than my own academic writings. And then they tend to write in ways that are generally philosophically consistent with their academic writings. And so my view is if a senator wants to read a law, law review article by Brett Kavanaugh and says that's where his heart is and therefore I'm not going to confirm him, that strikes me as an altogether fair evaluation, whether they were right or not, whether an altogether fair way for a senator to behave with respect to a nominee's prior record. But I'm not sure why that conveys any obligation on the part of the nominee to recuse from any given case. But I don't think we're in the realm of obligations. We're in the realm of whether or not, look, as you've written previously, right, there are no rules in Supreme Court confirmations. And so to the extent that this is sort of a, a Hail Mary by very very concerned Democrats, would it be improper for someone to recuse? Well, right? it's voluntary. So right now, we're, we're in a nomination process. There will be a confirmation. The confirmation itself, in a sense, is a referendum on the person and everything that they've said or done publicly prior to getting the nomination. So that would include a law review article that seems to suggest that they would be favorable to the president. So the remedy for that is senators voting no. It, assuming somebody goes successfully through the confirmation process, you know, it seems to me then the bar gets a step higher in the sense that, as you noted, Susan, there needs to be an appearance of a conflict, an appearance of an of a problem. And the appearance would then be either the president himself saying something that suggests that this is why he made this pick or that he has this expectation or someone, you know, who was involved in the White House's staff decision saying this is how the decision happened. Um, 
then I, you know, then I think a justice should recuse. Then they have something in front of them that impugns their independence and their integrity. They would be wise to recuse. I guess I, I would I would put a, just a slightly different sort of gloss on it, which is that there's nothing about these views themselves that are wrong or in bad faith or would be disqualifying someone from being confirmed. Right? It's it actually doesn't go to the judge's fitness at all or their suitability to be a Supreme Court justice. It goes entirely to the president and him using wielding his constitutional powers in ways that are improper. And so the question here would not be whether or not there there, there isn't an individual on in this list that I think you could actually say, you know, in good faith, this person sort of in Trump's pocket. It's about whether or not Trump is improperly, as he has in the past, wielding his authorities in order to benefit himself on this very specific question. And so I, I just think we're in a world in which I would argue that maybe we should reverse the presumptions. So I'll ask one very quick question. You made the point, Ben, that if the nominee is asked did anybody in the White House ask you about your views on the Russia probe or on the subpoenas or these kinds of things? What if the answer is I'm not going to discuss things that I discussed with the president? Is that a problem? Uh, so first of because all – Because then presumably the answer is yes. So, so f- f- first of all, that would be a departure from past practice on the part of the nominee because it's, it's a fully – typical thing in the context of nom- nominations to ask, did, did anybody ask you your views of Roe v. Wade? No, no, no. The question never came up. I was never asked about how I would rule on blah, blah, blah. So pe- there is not a, a kind of executive privilege with respect. I, I'm using executive privilege there loosely, you know, loosely yeah. but there's no principle that has operated in prior nominations that, you know, that there's some privilege against speaking about your conversations right. with right. the White House or the president. And in fact, nominees have been rather flamboyant about saying, nobody asked me about this. I was never talked to about why. And so a nominee who refused to answer that question, I think, could fairly be suspected of of protecting something. And I would think if, look, I would think if a that would set up a significant recusal motion. You know, if, if, if you were Justice Shane Harris and you oh, would testify. I would vote to confirm you for sure. Te- and you'd testified before the Senate in, uh, Judiciary Committee and been asked, were you asked about a pending investigation affecting the president? And you said, I, I'm not going to answer that question, Mr. Senator. I would think the special counsel might file a recusal motion that says we have record evidence that that you as a justice refused to answer questions about your conversations mm-hmm. with the White House on this case. Please recuse. I would think that would be a very substantial recusal motion. Mm-hmm. I would only have one question for you, Shane, mm-hmm. if you were nominated for a federal judgeship. Mm-hmm. Do you know how many innings there are in a baseball game? <laughs> <laughs> Supreme Court or bust for and you, baby. How do you pronounce B-E-Y-O-N-C? <laughs> yeah. I don't discuss my views on baseball or pop culture. So uh, I think this podcast has effectively disqualified anyone. I think so. <laughs> I think so. Uh, we are definitely we are we are all recused and disqualified from so many so many walks of life. That's why we're here recording a podcast. Um, 
There was a striking photograph last week uh, that Tammy spotted actually on social media and flagged to me, and I think it made the rounds quite a bit. So depressing. Yeah, of a uh, a press briefing at the Pentagon on Afghanistan, uh, which is, I think for some time, right, has been the longest the longest war that American forces have served in. Um, and there were about two reporters in the room in this uh, vast room that can hold about 50 people. It was mostly empty chairs and two reporters. Three. Uh, three three reporters. reporters. Okay. Uh, in fairness, we think there was an official who was also giving a, a televised or a, 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 a um, uh, remote briefing from the field that was carried on a closed circuit. So there may have been other reporters watching from their desks back in their newsroom. But it was this striking visual of they, they made, uh, I think, a lot of people sort of say, hey, whatever happened to that war in Afghanistan that we've been fighting? Um, Tammy, it really has kind of remarkably fallen off the fall of foreign policy and national security radar. And Trump is getting ready to go to the NATO summit at a time when he's questioned the value of our alliances, our military alliances, the commitment of our military commitment of our allies, their security commitments. Um, talk about what you're expecting vis-a-vis, you know, Afghanistan, I guess, as we go into this summit, and and why is it that we seem to be, it seems to become an afterthought in policymaking? Yeah, so it's really striking the extent to which the Trump administration and President Trump himself simply don't talk about Afghanistan. Uh, It's as though they want to forget about it. And so whereas, you know, in the early part of the Barack Obama administration, um, Afghanistan was called the good war and Iraq was called the bad war. Um, You know, Afghanistan was the virtuous war, the war against the people who did 9-11 and their and their allies. And, And now Afghanistan is called the forever war because it is the longest military conflict in U.S. history and the forgotten war. Um, And it's notable that President Trump hasn't visited U.S. troops in the field anywhere since he came into office. Combat troops. Combat troops. Combat troops. He hasn't been to Iraq or Afghanistan. Um, He's much more concerned with our troops along the U.S. border in the form of... uh, CPB and ICE, Exactly. Um, You know, and, and so... You can be forgiven for, you know, thinking that maybe the Trump administration simply doesn't care about this conflict um, and those who are fighting it and sort of wishes it would go away. The problem here is that, as you noted, um, he this is a NATO conflict. The United States isn't in this alone. NATO forces have been with us from the very beginning because the only time NATO's Article 5 of collective self-defense has ever been invoked was in the wake of 9-11. Um, so right now there are about 16,000 uh, foreign troops as part of the NATO mission in Afghanistan, the Resolute Support Mission. Uh, fewer than two-thirds of those are U.S. troops. Um, the bulk of the rest are EU, come from EU countries who are uh, either NATO members or NATO partners, and about 10% come from other NATO members and NATO partners. There are 39 countries who contribute troops to the NATO mission. And um, and so it's relevant that President Trump has spent the last couple months just trashing these allies. Um, and usually in the summers, especially in June and July, uh, the U.S. president goes to the series of summits, the G7 summit, the U.S.-EU summit and the NATO summit. And they're usually quite in close proximity. And they are usually an occasion where. Uh, the American president reinforces this Western democratic open market alliance 
um, of countries that help the United States achieve its goals and secure its interests all around the world. And this year, we already saw him blow up the G7 summit. I don't know that there is going to be a US-EU summit. Um, I haven't heard anything about it. Could be wrong. Uh, and there are huge questions about whether he's even going to sit quietly through the core sessions of the NATO summit. And of course, immediately after the NATO summit, he's going off to meet one-on-one with Vladimir Putin. Um, so what will be the attitude of other NATO members toward our mission in Afghanistan? Are they facing their own domestic politics, going to continue to be willing to contribute troops to a mission that is, you know, uh, driven by uh, an American definition of NATO's interests and of international security. It is a UN mandated uh, operation. Um, but it's been going on for a really long time. And other countries have shed blood alongside US troops in the field in Afghanistan. So I, you know, I could see um, I could see especially uh, some of our European allies looking at the Afghanistan mission as a place where they can cut uh, some of their engagement with the United States um, without paying any domestic political price at home. And, you know, that could be a, a downward spiral pretty quickly. So my question is, you know, whenever right after the election, um, there was sort of this uh, list within the national security community of, well, here's the areas in which things are already so bad or already so complex and and uh, and entrenched that maybe this is an area in which Trump really shaking things up, throwing out the old policy, forget the blob, bringing in something new. Um, and, and Afghanistan was, uh, was at the top of that list. We actually haven't heard the president talk about Afghanistan much at all, other than this alienation of NATO allies, which seems like it's nothing but downside to us. Is there any evidence that Trump or Mattis or this administration is thinking about Afghanistan differently than prior administrations have? I, there has not been any radical policy departure. There hasn't been any major policy announcement. And when we look at what U.S. forces are doing, what the Resolute Support Mission is doing, it's very much as it was before, which is a security assistance mission to the Afghan military and Afghan police trying to help them retake areas from the Taliban, police those areas, provide basic security, build trust with the uh, population and um, and where they can, you know, cut down on corruption and um, narcotics and, and things like that. Uh, it's look, this is a mission that started in 2015. It has had very limited success. <laughs> uh, the Taliban has been gaining ground over the last year or so. Um, there is a lot of debate and controversy over negotiating strategy uh, for the Afghan government with the Taliban. And there is certainly a school of thought, in even in the blob, that the United States should cut its investment in Afghanistan and help Ashraf Ghani cut a deal. Um, so I don't, you know, I don't think that it would be um, dismissed out of hand uh, if the administration came up with a new approach. But I think mostly what we have here is a policy of benign neglect. And that's exactly why I think some of the NATO allies may start thinking about just backing slowly away. And if they were to do that, what do you mean, practically speaking, it, it, 
it sounds like you can make the case that not much would change. Well, right. It, I mean, it puts a little bit more pressure on us, I guess, to bring force levels back to where they were absent. Right. Those so would we, we make up the gap or would we <clears throat> or just would we reduce our presence as well? And it would be a kind of uh, cut and run, but undeclared cut and run strategy. Hmm. All right, let's move on. Let's cut and run from the news segment. That of the one program. was good. <laughs> that was good. That was good. Uh, let's move on to object lessons. Uh, ben, do you have an object? So I do have an object. Is it a Beyonce album? It is not a Beyonce mm. album. It's way nerdier than can that. Can you name a Beyonce song? <laughs> I cannot. Can you uh, name Beyonce's husband? <laughs> no. <laughs> um, Let's quiz Ben about it's that Beyonce. Singer. It's that singer, Jay-Z. <laughs> As he's known in the UK. Jay-Z. It's that rapping artist. <laughs> a few weeks ago... Uh, I went out to uh, Sausalito, California, to a meeting of a group that had been secret, um, but then the New York Times outed, uh, which is called Patriots and Pragmatists, and which is a cross-ideological group of uh, people concerned from an activist, intellectual, and other uh, academic level about the future of democracy in the United States. And this group has been having these kind of retreat meetings for a while now. And uh, those of us, for those people who haven't read uh, Yasha Munk's incredible article about it in Slate and the relationship that developed between him and David French, the National Review writer, as a result of these meetings, uh, I strongly encourage it. But when I got to this meeting, uh, the the party favor for the meeting was a little button, uh, a lapel button, with the words Coalition of All Democratic Forces uh, written on it, which is a reference uh, to this uh, hashtag that I had come up with right at the right before, actually before the Trump administration came in, uh, right around uh, around the period of the election. Um, I started tweeting about and writing on Lawfare about Coalition of All Democratic Forces, which I saw as a kind of cross-ideological, very much in the spirit of what became this Patriots and Pragmatists group. Um, and so they had this uh, these buttons printed up. And so my object lesson today is the Coalition of All Democratic Forces button, oh. uh, which I have... Uh, You're going to have two lapel buttons. Yeah, exactly, now. which I'm going to start wearing along with the Baby Cannon lapel pin. Uh, You're going to have legit fruit salad. I, I'm going to have like one on each side. It's a good uh, thing that a suit has two lapels. It is. That's what they're for. Very good. Very good. Um, all right. My object is uh, I speak on a lot of panels. I moderate a lot of panels. Uh, and I you're always good at it. You're a really good moderator. I enjoy it. Because you're good at the segues. And I always say, I always say how glad I'm to be moderating a panel. And it's true. But I'm about to moderate a panel for which I have not ever been as excited to moderate a panel. Oh, God. Is Beyonce I know it's on coming. it? In my life. Uh, July 12th, which is a Thursday, there will be drinking involved from 6 to 8. New America is sponsoring a panel. Should we communicate with aliens? <laughs> I will be <laughs> joined. I like the embedded assumptions throughout all of that. <laughs> Heat strokes so has hit good. New America over there. So good. Uh, I'm going to be joined by an honest-to-God astrophysicist and an honest-to-God astrobiologist. What? Let that sink in. Okay. 
Dude, like Martian bacteria. Are they going yes. to record this panel? I they better. And can we run it on the Lawfare podcast? I mean, it was a condition of my joining. <laughs> okay, it wasn't really, but I will make it one. Yeah, definitely have this, them send us the audio. So we we're so I'm going to be with uh, Lucianne Walkowitz and uh, Elisa Quintana uh, asking this question: Should we communicate with aliens? So the premise here being, you know. Not just, you know, that, that, that we're past the whole question of disaster, terrestrial life exists, exist, okay? It, I take it as a given. You know how I feel about this. Jodie Foster told us it was there. She totally <laughs> told us it was there. We, we can totally build it. They have we seven build legs. it, we can go. Right. That's how that works. That and it's not can way. we talk to them, but it's, should we? Should we talk it's, to it's them? It's an ethical. <laughs> it's ethical. Well, it's actually, in fact, it is a security dilemma as well. Because, I mean, this is a but question. But not a rational security <laughs> No, no, it is. Let me tell you why. Because there's been the question raised of like, here we are just floating around in our little secure system, of the, part of the solar system. Like, if you alert intelligent life that has this, just looking for planets to gobble up, that here we are. You know, what if they come and gobble us up? There's some people who would argue that we should just sit here quietly and don't draw attention to yourself. But we already when, you know, sent the Galactic Voyager. fleet is flying by. We already sent them the Beatles, I and there, or the, was it the Rolling Stones? I, know. Well, they, I don't think there was a Beatles song. Chuck Berry was the only rock and roll song okay. on that album. Yeah, exactly. Only two yeah. copies in existence, and we flung them into the stars. <laughs> oh, we're going to talk about that, too. And you should come. So go to... Uh, newamerica.org slash events, I believe is where you're going to... Yeah, newamerica.org slash... <laughs> I love this little obsession up. of yours. It's going to be amazing, you guys. I cannot wait. Um, 6 to 8 o'clock on Thursday, July 12th, come. <laughs> it's going from 6 to 8. It may go on till much later in the evening at a bar someplace. Have fun, Shane. I am going to have fun. Follow uh, your bliss, Shane. Follow your bliss. Follow your bliss right to the end of this podcast. It was a blissful afternoon. Thank you all. Rational Security is brought to you by Lawfare. You can find our internet show page. On it's maybe Lawfare. on the Voyager probe. No, no. You can find it on the Wait, Lawfare what? homepage <clears throat> at, uh, uh, I forget the URL, uh, lawfare.com, <laughs> lawfareblog.com slash rational security. Wow. An actual easy to find. It happened. It's so it totally happened. We made contact. Wow, the wow. eagle has landed. Yes. Dun, da, da, da. Dear God. I think we should just stop right here and start drinking. Pigs we- are flying. Hell Pigs has frozen flying. over. You can find us on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter at RATL Security. Uh, whenever you download the podcast, please leave us a rating and review. It really helps us out. Our audio engineer this week was Matthew Kahn, who thinks we should not communicate with aliens, apparently. Takes my side on this. Uh, <laughs> our producer was presented by Jen Patia Howell. Uh, music this week. <laughs> <laughs> by Kim Jong-un and Beyonce and their new duo, Bay Twice. What? <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> oh, my God. <sighs> he went there. pass out. <laughs> oh, but Sophia Yan will revive me. With Sophia Yan, tones. who's now also probably heard of Beyonce. <laughs> probably heard of Beyonce. As Better Kim Jong- than Beyonce. So is Kim knows Jong-un. How to pronounce just so we're clear. Kim Jong-un knows how to pronounce Beyonce. <laughs> On behalf of my good friends Susan Hennessy, Tamar Kaufman-Wittis, and Ben Wittis, I'm Shane Harris. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.